blanks on your notes, give it up. Because they're not going to be on PowerPoint this morning, and I'm not going to focus hard enough to make sure you get them all filled out. So you can just fill in the blanks, whatever you want to right now, and then just follow along with the sermon. Um, that's going to make life a lot easier for you if you are one of those who just have to have them all filled in. We'll get them done, and we're going to listen together. Well, open your Bibles with me to the book of Mark. This morning we are in Mark chapter 9. As we journey through our book of Mark, we are seeing Jesus giving vision to people, physical vision, but then also sharpening their vision, sharpening their spiritual vision. We've heard Jesus tell the people to take up their cross, to deny themselves, and to follow him. We've learned that they are called, we are called to be faithful believers who pray if we want to see the supernatural work of God. It's where we've been in this book. And I want you to think this morning as we begin about this gravitational force. Right, a gravitational force that, that, that is at work that is seeking to transform the way the universe works. There is a force that is work, a force that pulls things apart that are supposed to be together. A, a force that corrupts beauty and creates chaos. A, a force in our world that, that brings destruction it brings a wilting, it brings decay, it ultimately brings death. We think about a force that, that actually infects all of us and bends us towards selfishness. And of course, the, the force that I'm talking about is the force of our own selfishness and our sin. And as we think about how, how we have this force within us, this force at work in all of the universe that is basically is our desires, we see this force of love of self at work. And in this morning's passage, we're going to see how Jesus addresses that in a variety of ways to help us to see our need for him, to help us to understand the problems that go on within us. And through this this morning, I pray that we would be set free from this gravitational force and then fight hard to stay free of it. And so let us look at our passage. But before we do, let us pray. Father, we thank you that, you that you love us. Lord, that you have given us beauty in creation. You have given us relationships that we find great delight in. Lord, we see all around us evidence of your work. And yet, God, we also see evidence of brokenness all around us. In the midst of the beauty that you have created, there's brokenness. And Lord, you've described to us that this brokenness is a result of sin and rebellion that exists within us and in others, and it has infected our whole world. And God, this morning, I pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts to understand in a more full way the gospel of Jesus Christ and its implications in our everyday lives. And Lord, help us this morning to see ourselves accurately, to see our need for you, and to see the abundant provision that you have given to us in Jesus Christ. It is in his name we pray. Amen. Well, Mark chapter 9, verse 20, begins by saying this, And they, these are the disciples, went from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered in, into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days... He will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, 
For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and he called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, but because, because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterwards to speak evil, evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives to you a cup of water to drink because, of you, because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have, if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go into hell. To the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. In our passage this morning, Jesus is teaching his disciples. He has pulled them together. They're traveling through the region of Galilee, and he's taking time to spend focusing on them. The crowds have been gathering around, the crowds have been all around, but now it's just he and the disciples, and he's helping them to sharpen their vision of what he's going to do. And it says that, that he is taking his disciples aside. He says the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. As we hear that, the question that we're thinking, we should ask the question, well, who's delivering Jesus into the hands of men? And really, we could likely have two clear answers. One would be that Judas is the one who delivers Jesus into the hands of men because Judas, although one of his disciples, is going to betray him. For 30 pieces of silver, he's dis dismayed about what's going on. He's going to sell out Jesus. And Jesus then is going to be arrested and crucified, which would certainly be a valid answer. But we also realize as we unfold the scriptures that there are bigger things going on than just what's happening in the events of everyday life. It's more than just a man going to be crucified, but it's the Son of God who is going to die for our sins. And hearing that, we think, well, who else could deliver Jesus into the hands of men? And I would argue that what this passage is talking about is that God the Father is going to deliver Jesus, His Son, and I would make that argument from the book of Acts. And turn with me a few books back to the book of Acts, chapter 4. And I want us to see how the early disciples, once Jesus had died on the cross, risen from the dead, once he had risen, and they go in to proclaim the gospel, people are being saved. There's some hostility growing up against Jesus. And so in this passage we're going to look at in Acts chapter 4, 
we're going to see a declaration about what has happened and his preaching that goes on and how they're understanding this. So the book of Acts, chapter 4, if you're using a pew Bible, this is on page 912. It says this in verse 27. Well, let's back up in verse uh, 25 and get some context here. It says, Who, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so he's going to quote an Old Testament passage inspired by the Holy Spirit, spoken by David. It says, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? And the kings of the earth set themselves, set themselves and the rulers again, were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And here it is. For truly in this city, this is Jerusalem, were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Okay, so let's pause here. We have the Jesus in the picture, and we also have Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, and the people of Israel. So it's Jesus and everybody else. Okay? And it says in verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. What he is saying here is that, that this death of Jesus Christ, that the death of Jesus Christ, which happened at the hands of men, they turned, the Jewish people turned Jesus over to the Romans, who the Romans then nailed him to the cross. All of that took place theologically because God handed Jesus over so that Jesus, taking our sins upon himself, would die as our Savior. And we see this passage, we see that it says that God's predetermined plan took place. And in this passage, we see, a, we see this incredible picture of, of this God's beautifully ordered idea of his sovereignty and our ability to make choices that work. Because the things that God are doing are exactly according to his plan, and the things that Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Jews and others did to Jesus, it's exactly what they wanted. And these two things, God's eternal plan and the will of man matched up perfectly. God didn't impose his will and make people do things they didn't want to do. They did exactly what they wanted, and God accomplished exactly what he wanted. And we see these truths come together in this passage in a really significant way that Jesus was handed over. And now, all of this happened not just to help us understand theology, but look back in Mark chapter 9, and it tells us why all this happens. In Mark chapter 9, verse 30, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the, son, into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And then it says, though, and when he is killed, after three days he will rise. And this whole will of man, the sovereignty of God, come together for our salvation. It comes together so that we would have hope and that we would have help. And so Jesus tells his disciples this. But look what verse 32 says. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask. As Jesus has continually helped them to understand this, he said the, almost the very same thing back in chapter 8, had told them that he's going to die, he's going to be buried, he's going to rise again. They didn't get it then, and they still don't get it. But did you notice how the passage ends? It says they were afraid to ask. And you think, well, why might they be afraid to ask? Well, in our context, remember last week when Jesus, these disciples, uh, Peter, James, and John had been up on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. 
They were up there. They came down, and the disciples are arguing with some scribes. And there's this guy whose son was possessed by an evil spirit, and the disciples weren't able to cast him out. And the dad's like, your disciples, I brought them to him, and they weren't able to cast him out. And do you remember what Jesus said to them, how he called the cr- crowd? He called them a, it says all the way up in verse 19, oh, faithless generation. Listen, these guys have just been called a faithless generation because they failed to pray and cast out a demon that they could have if they prayed. A little bit earlier, Jesus had rebuked Peter because Peter said to Jesus, basically, I don't, you're not going to die. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And so with some of that in the background, the disciples might be a little leery. It's like, I'm not sure I want to ask this question. That might be part of it. Another part of it might be they're afraid to ask because they think, well, we should already know this. He's told us this over and over, and we don't get it. And I'm not going to ask because I'm not getting it yet. And as a pastor, one of the things I'm burdened with is I hear this phrase, they were afraid to ask him. I often wonder how often people are afraid to ask questions in our church. You know, I sometimes wonder that because, I mean, I'm, I'm very thankful for those of you who ask lots of questions because questions indicate, here's, here'd be a Steve Wicker view of life. Questions mean you're thinking. And when you're not asking questions, I'm not saying you don't think, but I wonder how much you're thinking. Because there's a lot of stuff in the Bible that's hard to understand. And as I'm studying the passage, I'm asking it lots of questions. But sometimes I think we may be afraid to ask because we don't know the context. Or we don't really understand, is this the right time to ask the question? Or sometimes I think pride gets in the way. I don't want to ask the question because why? Man, I've grown up in church. I should know this already, right? I ought to know all of this stuff, but so I'm not going to ask. And, and the selfishness can keep us from that. But, but so here's what, I, here's what we're going to do in a few weeks on um, August 18th. We haven't done one of these for a little while, but we're going to have an Ask Me Anything night. Okay, it's Sunday night, August 18th, okay, after school starts. Uh, we're going to spend a Sunday evening when your bulletin in the, next, in the few weeks before that are going to be little cards that say what? Many of you know? They say, Ask Me Anything, right? Ask Me Anything. And it's for that purpose to write out those questions on Sunday night. We're just going to walk through those questions as a, an opportunity for us to learn together. So I want to mark your calendars, August 18th, be here Sunday night, write your questions, and we're going to work through them. Uh, those are fun nights for us, but uh, again, an opportunity to ask questions and not to be afraid. You don't even have to sign your name on them. So you might be a little afraid, but it gives you an opportunity to be afraid and still ask. Okay, so anyway, so the disciples, they're, they're working with Jesus. Jesus is telling these incredible truths, and they're afraid to ask him questions. And what happens next? Verse 33. So they're traveling through Galilee. They came to Capernaum. And when he's in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? Now, as we think about this, why does Jesus ask questions to gather information? Yeah, right. We realize Jesus knows everything, right? And he asks questions, and he knows the answer to his question, and we'll see that he knows the answer with some of his teaching. But as he asked this question, he says to them, what were you discussing along the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. All right, so why didn't they answer Jesus' question? They're convicted, right? They know that they should not have been talking about what they were talking about. Because what has Jesus just been telling him he's going to do? He's going to die. He's going to be handed over. He's going to be killed, right? That's not this idea of greatness, in the world's idea, you don't get much lower than dying. And how's Jesus going to die? 
He's going to die as a servant, nailed to a cross as a criminal, as not just a common criminal, but a horrible criminal. That's how he's going to die. and He's giving himself as a selfless servant. Jesus set the pace for this, being a selfless servant. And they're arguing about what? Who's the greatest? And so Jesus asked him a question. Hey, what are you guys talking about? Which, by the way, from a parenting standpoint, and those of you who are seeking to love others wisely and be a good friend, questions are really good things to use to help people see things they don't see. Right? Because Jesus doesn't say to them, Jesus knows what they're talking about, but he doesn't blast them for it. He says, I can't believe you guys were walking here and you guys are talking about that. I've just told you that I'm going to die and raise from the dead and all you guys are talking about are who's going to be the greatest. Come on! When are you going to get this? That's not the spirit we see, Jesus. But here's a question. When you're working with someone else and they're not getting it and they're not getting it and they're not getting it, how easy is it to be patient? It's pretty tough. But what we see here is Jesus asks a question and his question pricks their conscience. He asks a question that pricks their conscience because they know they shouldn't be talking about this. And there's a parenting counseling, being a good friend tip, here's a little statement, that questions prick the conscience, but accusations harden the will. If I say to you, I can't believe you did that, what's your initial response? I'm defensive, push back, I'm going to argue back, but what's a question do? A question draws me in. The question causes me to think. And asking good questions helps us to, to discern and get to the heart and allow people to their own conscience to be at, conscience to be at work. And that's what Jesus does here. He asks this question. And he asks the question, and then it says in verse 35, and so they didn't answer it. In verse 35 then, he sat down and he called the twelve. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, that's what you guys have been arguing about, who's going to be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Jesus is saying, listen, in my kingdom, everything's turned upside down. In your kingdom, in the kingdom of our world, it's striving to be on top. I'm striving to get on top of the mountain, striving to be at the top of my corporation, in my family, in my business. I want to be on top. And Jesus says the way to greatness is not through striving to be on top, but serving others. And he says that, again, he says that also in the book of Matthew. He says this in Matthew 23, 11, The greatest among you shall be your servant. That's, I just pause there. Isn't that counterintuitive? I mean, we think, who are the great people in our culture? Right? Is it the, the, the trash people? I mean, are you thankful for trash people? I am. I'm following a trash truck the other day, and I was thankful for the trash truck. Right? It's getting rid of all that stuff, and I'm glad that they are willing to serve us by doing that. Right? How many of us, but, but the great people are those who achieved great things. They have great status. In our culture, we don't see greatness as those who serve. After the basketball game, we don't stand in the stands and then applaud the people that come and dust the, dust the floor. We're like... Praise you. Wait, look, great work. You are the greatest person out here on the floor tonight because you've come to serve us. People picking up popcorn, the Coke that we spilled and all that. They're coming clean and all that up. We're not standing in the, in, the, in the seat saying, you guys are the best. You're awesome. Not asking for their autographs. We're not even concerned. What do we do? We just go home and trust somebody else is going to clean it all up. 
But in God's kingdom, it turns this upside down. And it says, if you want to be first, you will be last of all and be a servant of all. And I would challenge you, what happens in our lives is this gravitational pull for everything to be about me means that I want others to serve me rather than me serve others. Does anybody else wrestle with that? Whose turn is it to do the dishes? Whose turn is it to sweep the floor? Who's going to do laundry? Who's going to fold the clothes this time? Whose turn is it to mow the yard? Right? We, we, those aren't things when it, we're in our homes. We're like, everybody's signed up and everybody wants to get to the top of that list. I want to mow the yard again, Dad. I did it the last six times. My turn again. I folded all the laundry in the last two months. I can't wait to fold another load. That's great. I love serving my family. Dishes, put them all in the sink, and I'm doing them all. Everybody, you don't worry about it all. You guys just go watch TV, and you guys do nothing, and I'm just going to serve you. Is that how it works in your home? Not ours either, right? And it starts to help us to realize, what do we want to do? I want to sit on the couch and mindlessly scroll through my phone rather than serve other people. And Jesus is telling us, in his kingdom, it's all turned upside down. And the beautiful thing is, it says, the great are those who are last of all and the servant of all. So here's a big question for us. Then who is the greatest in the kingdom of God? What's his name? Jesus. Why is Jesus the greatest of all? Because he became the last of all. He was nailed to a cross as a criminal. He was last of all. He served all. Who does Jesus serve? The scriptures tell us that who can come to Jesus? Whosoever. For all who who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus has come to serve us all by giving his life, dying on the cross, taking our sins, dying, raising from the dead for us to serve us. And he continues to serve us. He continues to serve us by interceding, praying for us in heaven. He continues to to work in us by sending the Spirit to help us to grow and change, to become more like Jesus. He is working for us. He continues to serve us as the most exalted thing there ever is. He's last of all, but He's the greatest. And that we would get our heads around this, that we too need to be people who are submitting ourselves to others, willing to serve, and realize that service becomes great. Now, if you're thinking when you get in the car, you're going to have a talk with your family about how they can be great, you've probably missed the point, right? Hey, when we get home, you guys can be great. I'm going to take a nap. You guys do cook dinner and all that. That, you've missed it, right? But but I would also say, we look at that we, well, I could go on and on. Let's go on. In our passage, that was great. So what does Jesus do in verse 36? He took a child, put him in the midst of them, and taking in his arm, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now, what does Jesus do? He's talking about greatness, and he looks around, and he sees a kid. And he sees a kid, and he brings him to the kid. And he's not saying here, because these are the most precious things, and if you take care of the most precious things in the world, you're wonderful. It's not what he's saying. Kids were insignificant in that culture. Okay, kids were insignificant. They didn't, they didn't matter. I mean, they, don't, they, they didn't elevate the kids in their culture like we do in ours. Okay? And, and, and so they're insignificant. And Jesus brings this insignificant child to himself. 
And what is he going to do with an insignificant person? Serve him. That's what Jesus does. And he is saying to us, whoever receives insignificant people, people who can't pay you back, people who can't advance your kingdom, people who can't make you richer, if you receive people like this, you receive me. But not only do we receive him, we receive the Father. And he's demonstrating to us what happens whenever we truly understand that Jesus is God and we deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him, is that we begin to serve others. We serve insignificant people. The ones that can't pay us back. The ones that can't, maybe they don't pat us on the back. And, and, and Pastor Nate has shared this phrase on a number of occasions with me, that you, you, that you, you see the true heart of a servant when they're treated like a servant. So, I've served, I've chosen, I'm going to do all the dishes, I'm going to serve everybody. And nobody says thank you. What does that do to you? Let me appreciate something. Why? They're treating me like a servant. I'm only treated like a servant. Oh yeah, I'm supposed to be a servant. And if they treat me like a servant, that's not between me and them. That's between them and God. I'm serving God because I love God. Not to get a pat on the back. Not so that others will serve me or praise me. I do it because I love him. Well, as this passage continues and we see this gravitational pull, this inward pull, Jesus is saying that we need to be set free from that. We need to, our pull needs to be to others and the others oriented. It says in verse 38, And John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. And so, John says, listen, Jesus, there's this guy, guy over here, and he's casting out demons in your name. And he's not part of us. And, and Jesus' response is, don't worry about it. Don't, don't worry about that. Because if he's casting out demons in my name, then he's doing the right thing. Now, what should have struck the disciples? Because earlier in this very same chapter, the disciples weren't able to cast out a demon. And so they're upset that this guy's doing what they couldn't do. But we learned that they couldn't do it because they weren't praying. They weren't living by faith. And so we see that connection that this individual who's casting out demons is living by faith. He's living by faith, using the name of Jesus. This guy's, in all the likelihood, a believer. And, and, and yet John's concern is that we tried to stop him. And look how the end of verse 39, 38 says. We tried to stop him... Because he was not following us. Uh-oh. That sounds like a problem, doesn't it? His concern was, he's not part of us. Now, if he said, because he's not following you, that's a whole different story. But he's not following us. I, I think oftentimes we're, we can be very guilty of this as well. I think many uh, as churches, we can be very guilty of this, that because others aren't like us, they must not be doing good things. 
because they're a different church than us, and maybe they're bigger or whatever. They do different things than us, and we've seen all these pe- people are getting saved and all that. We're like, well, they can't be real believers, or they're going to be watered-down believers. Can't be good because they're not like us. And we can become very critical of others who are declaring the name of Jesus, who hold the good theology, and are different than us. And I'm concerned sometimes that we can be like John and thinking, I'm not happy about this because that's not, that's not us. We're not having all that blessing. We're not casting out the demons. We're not having all that fruit. And, and, and so stop them, Jesus. Rather than, Jesus, help us to do the same. To do more of this in your name. And that idea in your name, in his name, becomes really significant because up earlier in verse 37, who says, if you receive a child in my name, and it says down in verse 39, if you do a mighty work in my name, it goes on that says, by that you do these things, you won't lose your reward. And it's incredible because he says, this mighty act of casting out demons or a little act of receiving a child or giving somebody a cup of water, if you're doing it in the name of Jesus, you will be rewarded. If you serve others in the name of Jesus, you will be rewarded. Whether that's big things and you're preaching and you're standing in front of groups of people and hundreds of people get saved, or you're setting up chairs for the event. If you're doing it in the name of Jesus, you're going to be rewarded. If you're working in the nursery. That's a, that can be a pretty thankless job, right? You have to change dirty diapers in there, right? And it's a place that I don't, don't, people don't want to serve in there. Why? Because that's not very fun. I miss out on other stuff, and I want to be served. I don't want to miss out on other things that are going on. I, I, want, to, I, I want to be served. And the beautiful thing is, we have a church this size. People step up to do that, still in that nursery. You don't have to do it once in a big, long stretch of time, right? This is a little bit of a goad to push your buttons a little bit because guess what we need? Nursery workers. Guess what else we need? Children's workers. We always do. It doesn't matter how size your church. We need that. And that, But oftentimes, well, I don't want to do that because I'm going to miss out or I want to be served. And I want to encourage you, the great are those who serve. And as we think about doing things in Jesus' name, we will by no means lose our reward. Now, Jesus in this passage now makes a hard turn. He makes a really hard turn in this passage because he's saying about these people, you will by no means lose, lose your reward. And now he's going to talk about a guy getting a, having a big rock tied around his neck and thrown into a sea. Look what he says. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And so the idea of causing one of these little ones who believe in me, it could be a child or somebody who's young in their faith and somebody who's creating problems for somebody like that. He says it would be better that this millstone, which would be a giant big rock that they use to grind wheat and other grains, and it was big enough that it would take a donkey to move it, that's put around your neck. And if you're thrown into a sea with a heavy rock around your neck, what's happening to you? It's a terrifying picture, isn't it? I mean, I think about the idea of drowning. That's awful. Right? I mean, helpless, and there's nothing you can do. He's saying... It would be bad. That's a good, that would be good for you compared to what you face 
if you cause one of these little ones to stumble. He goes on, and, and he says in verse 43, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go into hell to an unquenchable fire. And he talks about if our foot causes to sin, to cut it off. If our eye causes to sin, gouge it out. He is saying that, that if we are going to be selfless servants of Jesus, that we will take radical steps to deal with sin. And in this, it's clear he's not talking literally cutting off hands and gouging out eyes because we read earlier in Mark that where does sin come from? Sin comes from what's in me, right? So cutting my hand off, cutting my eye out does, won't keep me from sinning. But what he's saying is the significant steps that we would, should be willing to take. Because, I mean, this is an amazing passage because it says it's talking about what? About hell, unquenchable fire, a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. This idea of hell that he is talking about is, is Gehenna. And it was a place where in Old Testament times that there were child sacrifices made. Babies burned in honor of another god. And he uses that to describe what this place of hell is like. It is a, it is a place where the fire does not go out. And he says, what leads us there? What does he say? Being unwilling to what? Deal with sin. If we are unwilling to deal with sin, he is saying that the, the consequences are significant. If I am unwilling to uproot this gravitational force of selfishness in my own heart, that I will go to hell. And that we will suffer for eternity in this place. And he does not mince words here. But he also, he doesn't describe particular sins other than the first one of causing a little one to sin. As we begin to read, listen, I'm going to read some sin verses for you. Right? And I want you to notice the degrees of sin that are in the same list. Okay? So first place is Romans 1, 29 to 31. It says, they were filled with all un manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, that's wanting other people's stuff, malice, they're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors, uh, inventors of evil, and then he says, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. You notice that list? Disobedient to parents, murder, same list. Do you realize that? I mean, he is saying in here that, that about haters of God with gossips. Whoa. We could look at 1 Corinthians 6. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither sexually immoral, or idolaters, or adulterers, or men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Galatians 5 says that now the evidence of the flesh, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, Jealousy, fits of rage, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, origins, and things like this 
I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not enter the kingdom of God. I hear passages like this, and it is a sobering reminder that God takes sin seriously. We live in a culture where we categorize sins, and the sins that are going to get you to hell are your sins. The sins that are probably okay are my sins. My gossip, the attitude that I have to somebody, I'm not forgiving somebody else, disobedient to people. Well, those are acceptable, respectable sins, right? Where do they lead? I am unwilling to turn away from those sins. Where do I end up? What does this passage teach us? If I'm unwilling to cut off a sin... Where, will, where does it lead me? To hell. And I think, man, that is serious, serious business. And it is. God's standard is high and holy. And it's high and holy. And he uses passages like this to reveal to us the ugliness of our sin and the consequences that come as a result of it. There is this enormous gap that separates us from God. And it's all of these sins. And you say, well, my sin's not that big a deal. Not to you. You're not the one who sets the rules. You're not the one who determines what's right and what's wrong. You're not the one who determines how much harm your sin does. See, this passage would teach us that you will never enter life if you continue walking in sin. You will never enter life if you continue walking in sin. What does that mean? That means if you're a gossip and you continue to be a gossip and you're a, um, or you are envious and you continue to be envious, that you are a hater of God and continue to be a hater of God, if you are sexually immoral and continue to be sexually immoral, you will not end up in the kingdom of God. Those who walk and continue to walk in sin will never enter the kingdom of God. And we should be asked the question, well, how do I get off that path then? How do I stop walking according to my sin? Because, listen, again... We live in a culture where people want to say, hey, you can be a sinner at this level and you still get to heaven. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches we need to be forgiven. But with forgiveness also comes transformation. Because Ezekiel tells us when God saves us, what does he give us? A new heart. He gives me a new heart, a new spirit. I become a believer in Jesus Christ. I receive the Holy Spirit. What does that do? That transforms me. Does it mean I never sin again? Nope. Does it mean I never stumble into sin and that I'm perfect? Nope. It doesn't mean that at all. What it does mean, though, is that my happy walk along the path of sin has been cut off. And now my relationship to sin has changed. And I'm not, not delightfully walking in sin, but I'm turning from it. Because I realize what it does in my relationship with God and what it does to me and the potential of all that. And I realize what is the hope for all of this, and the hope for all of this is Jesus Christ. It is our Savior that rescues us from the from this. And I want to listen. I want to urge you this morning to not take this lightly. And if you think about the sins that we so we we I will do this so easily minimize. We could be heading to hell confident that, well, I prayed a prayer when I was six, and I trusted Jesus as my Savior, but I'm walking in a path of sin undaunted. You, you should be terrified. You're sleeping with your girlfriend, 
you're looking at pornography consistently, and it's just a pattern of your life. You're gossiping, you're gossiping. You're like all kinds of about people. If you're boastful and proud of, you know, look how great I am, and you're looking down on other people, listen, Jesus is calling us to repent of that, to turn from this, because he has come to rescue us. He's come to give us life and to turn us from this path and to help us to see there's something better. And what's better is him. He's better than any sin you're ever going to participate in. He's far greater than that. And what, listen, what cuts off the hand, what cuts off the foot, and what gouges out the eye of sin is a greater love. And it's a love not for my sin, but a love for my Savior. Because I understand that Jesus has loved me. and He's died and risen again so that I could have new life. And he's wanting to transform me so that I'm on a path that my days are getting brighter and brighter and brighter because I love him, I'm serving him, and I'm following him. That's new life. That's the gospel. That's hope. And Jesus does all of this freely and offers us this abundant life to us and calls us, turn, trust, and walk. And that we would walk faithfully with him. As we understand this big picture of our passage this morning, it's about being a selfless servant. And as selfless servants, Jesus calls us, he calls us to follow him, deny ourselves, take up our cross. He calls us to focus not on being great in the kingdom of God, but willing to wash feet, feet. To, to, to be more concerned not about who's following us, but about who's following Jesus. That we would be faithful servants who take radical steps to avoid sin, that we trust Jesus. And we turn from him and we hear the promise that if we ask for forgiveness that he cleanses us from all unrighteousness and he makes us new. I would ask you this morning, are you a selfless servant? Are you humbly serving others? Joyfully serving your Savior by giving of yourself for others, for their good? Are you taking radical steps to avoid sin? Are you walking faithfully with the Messiah or are you walking in sin? There's hope. There's hope for all of us today. And that hope is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's loved us. He's given himself for us. He continues to love us. He continues to serve us so that we could be radically different. And that's our hope. And I would pray this morning that you, your heart would be captured by a love for our Savior. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us Jesus to set the pace for us as to what it looks like to be a selfless servant. Lord, I pray that you would challenge us to be willing to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow you. Lord, that we would seek not to be first, but we would be willing to be last, last of all, servants of all. Lord, I pray that we would not be focused on who's following us, but who's following you. And God, I pray that you would stir our hearts. And if there's someone here today who is, they would look at their life and say that they're just walking on a path of sin, that they're continually engaging in sin that is contrary to your word, that they would turn from that today, that they would turn and trust you, that they would forgiveness and cleansing. 
And God, for all of us, that we would continue to have that would be the pattern of our life, a pattern of seeking forgiveness as we stumble into sin, that we'd seek forgiveness and cleansing and know with confidence that we can be cleansed and made new. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for giving us Jesus to set the pace for us as selfless servants and help us to serve you and to serve one another because we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.